everyone welcome back to searching the sacred we are in season six and we've covered a number of different random things this is a random season and we are going to do something even more random than we normally do instead of looking at a singular story or a singular narrative or a proverb or a letter we're going to actually look at a word we're going to dive into the word shalom and we're going to highlight that word in the blessing that comes in Numbers chapter 6. So, Lisa, Numbers chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 24. And I'm reading it out of the Inclusive Bible. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God look kindly upon you and give you peace. Okay. Um, I'm curious how many, I feel like there are a lot of religious traditions where that's read on like every Sunday or spoken in some, like I grew up in a Lutheran tradition where that blessing was given at every service. And it's one of those parts of the Bible I had memorized, but I didn't even realize I had a verse memorized. <laughs> I'm curious how many people as they hear that are like, oh yeah, I know that one. It's up on the wall at my grandma's house or I've heard it every Sunday. And it ends with this word shalom that Jason referenced um, that is often translated peace. And so that's how we think about it a lot. And we're going to talk more about it today. What are the different ways that it's used? Um, how is it used? So let's start with how it sounds or feels when we hear it here as a part of a blessing where God is, where we're asking God to give it to us. What do you, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you think of God giving us peace? I think in this verse, it feels a little bit like an afterthought. And, and so I know we're, we're wanting to dive into this word more and not just focus on the context around it per se, but with like the Lord, you know, putting like his, the Lord's face upon us, grace, countenance upon you and give you peace. It's almost like, well, there's like three words there that are a little bit more complicated. And the fourth one is peace. And that one I do understand. Because the way I understand it is just like, don't let me experience violence or don't let me experience harm. That's that's kind of how I would generally have understood it, not knowing anything about the Hebrew or anything about the context of what Israel's going through or why this blessing is being given. I would just be like, oh, okay, there's these weird things about face and countenance and then grace, which I kind of get, but it's Old Testament, so I don't know if what, what that means. And then peace. Well, okay. That's the most obvious one. So that's where I would start. Uh, well, I didn't really pay any attention to this verse, even though it was spoken so often, which I think is sometimes what happens when things are spoken so often, you almost don't pay attention to what's happening. It becomes recitation versus uh, like thoughtful engagement. Um, so with this particular verse, it it's really something I've grown to love. i done some translating work for myself on it, which I really enjoyed doing. But I think today what I'm noticing that I hadn't noticed before was a lot of the verse I can, I actually have imagery that pops up for me, like thinking about God, like lifting a face and being face to face. There's certain ways that I can Im imagine everything. But when I think about like God giving peace, I was like, oh, it almost like it, it feels like in my head it translates to like, well, it's like your pastor, like giving you the blessing. Mm. And, but then I was actually just wondering about um, like the word give and wondering about, it feels like it's something that God has that perhaps we don't have, that there's something that God mm. is giving us that we are somehow lacking perhaps. I don't know. Mm. I It's yeah. That's what I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. I love that, like God giving us something we're lacking. Mm -hmm. um, and even noticing that the verb associated with it is give. We're asking God in this context, we're asking for God to give us peace. Give us shalom versus some of the other things. The So here, shalom isn't the verb. It's the, it's the object. <laughs> I don't know my grammar, right? So like. God bless us. The verb there is bless, but here the verb is give and the thing being given is shalom. Right. It's the, uh, it's the object. The subject is giving the object. Mm -hmm. 
which that feels, that does feel different, Lisa. I think that's an interesting pause to just say, what does it mean to be given shalom? And does it imply it's something we don't have until it's given, or we can always have more of it? Um, that was something we need. Why give as the action verb? Yeah, it's interesting to think of shalom or peace as a noun versus a verb mm-hmm. in some ways. Like um, when I think of I, peace just has so much relationship to having like lack of war or lack of conflict in my head. Mm-hmm. Like when I hear the word peace, there's a, it feels like without conflict. <laughs> Um, so to think of what does it mean to have peace that's a noun? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't well, know. And I kind of think we should come back to that. So I think what we would be helpful when we're looking at a word is to study shalom as a verb Very good. and then come back to it as a noun. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, and then after looking at it as a verb, see how we define the noun. So right now we're just letting the noun be defined as peace because that's how our Bible translated it. There are lots of other words we could use, but we're going to hold off on using those words because we're going to come up with our own <laughs> after looking at the verb. Well, and as you've always said, Hebrew is a verbal language where everything originates from a verb. So we're by doing it this way, we're not just doing it because it's convenient. We're doing it because it's probably the healthiest way to engage this language by studying the verb first and then moving it to a noun. Mm-hmm. So the verb is shalom, which one of the things to even notice about that, if if we were a visual instead of a podcast, <laughs> I'd probably hold up little Hebrew characters, is that there aren't verb markers in the scroll. So shalom and shalom are spelled the exact same way in a scroll. Um, the verb and the noun are spelled with the letter shin, the letter lamed, and the letter mem, whether noun or verb. So that connection is super, super clear in a scroll without verb markings, even though as I say it, you can hear that shalom and shalom sound different. Um, that happens a lot with the with the verb. The, the, it's more clear in the consonants. So shalom. I think a good place to go here is Exodus 22 because it's actually, I don't even think I knew this until I was just looking at it. It's used in like every single verse in Exodus 22. It's in verse one, verse three, verse four, verse five, verse six, verse seven, verse nine, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15 of Exodus 22 have the verb shalom, Um, which is fascinating. That's new to me at this very moment. So let's pick a part of it. I don't think we want to read the whole chapter, but maybe we could start. I don't know. I want to start with my title, my like the subheading, which isn't actually in the scroll, says property rights. So that's what's coming where it's used all these times is something about property rights. But I don't uh maybe we should read out loud. Exodus 22, one to six. Sure. Exodus 22, 1 through 6 says this in the NRSV. When someone steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, the thief shall pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and is struck dead, no blood guilt is incurred. But if it happens after sunrise, blood guilt is incurred. The thief shall make full restitution or, if unable to do so, shall be sold for the theft. When the animal, whether ox or donkey or sheep, is found alive in the thief's possession, the thief shall pay double. When someone causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets livestock loose to graze in someone else's field, restitution shall be made from the best in the owner's field or vineyard. When fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, the one who started the fire shall make full restitution. Thus ends the reading of the Lord. <laughs> well, exactly. Why did you end it that way, Jason? Because I almost like started laughing halfway through because it was just like an, such a, a, it's like reading a legal document. Yeah. So these are sections of scripture that we are, and it keeps going. Like, again, I said, this is used over and over in here. It's going to keep talking in this kind of language for the whole chapter. And Shalom is used, being used over and over again. We'll talk about how, but maybe it's helpful as you just read that to remember 
that huge portions of the Hebrew scriptures are dedicated to legal language because the people at the time they were being given to this by God, they weren't just forming a church or a community. They were forming a nation state and nation states need to know what to do when an ox dies, when something is stolen, what's the, they're establishing a criminal justice system because that's a part of a society. And so those, that kind of language is in there. And sometimes we want to just skip over it. And sometimes maybe we should, because sometimes we can say, guess what? We're not a nation state. So we can skip that part, but sometimes we can say, okay, what kind of laws is God establishing? And what does that tell us about God or people or, or these words that are being used in it? And what does it mean to focus on them once in a while? I'm especially curious about Lisa, who is intimately tied with the criminal justice system in the United States, how she feels about these laws. And she is making a face. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. Um, it's interesting how deep our fascination with uh, justice and how to make things right and rules and trying to place rules goes. Um, it reminds me a little bit of. I can like I can see stand your ground in this, and that's bothersome for me. That mm. if a thief is breaking in and he's struck so he dies, there's no guilt for his bloodshed. Makes me wonder about um, how's that so, and what's the difference between guilt and punishment? I, there's a, I have a lot of different questions that are swirling. I've never paused on this to read it through that lens before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just having a very, I don't know. I just feel like we've got so much wrong for so long. And now this just makes it feel like it's even more deeply embedded and it's being tied to like rules that God gave specifically. And, um, yeah, so I'm a little irritated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See how the rest of this goes. Well, that was even part of it is saying like, we can't, sometimes this conversation is embedded with irritating things. Like you can't just pick out the verses that aren't irritating. Although maybe sometimes you can, but it's helpful to say like, okay, we're going to be able to learn some things about this word from this chapter that might feel really encouraging and beautiful to us. And they might feel irritating to us. And either way, we're learning something important about the word and we're learning something about God and that wrestle, that struggle is a part of it that we don't have to be afraid of. So let me throw this out. and. This might not be, this might be helpful or might not be. It might just be like, oh, you're trying to make it sound better. Um, which <laughs> I said that in a naggy voice because it does come across that way. So, and this may be obvious to a lot of people, maybe not. But if we're in a society where we have something done to us and then societally we're allowed to basically double, triple, quadruple the amount of pain that was done to us. And that's like kind of the legal currency at the time. And then here, we're actually just saying, if a thief comes into your house and is trying to steal your possessions and they get killed, there's no guilt on your part. Like, it's kind of like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Like, in our society, we would look at an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth or whatever and be like, hmm, not cool. Like, we don't, we don't do that. We need to be more restorative. But then where you would like, it would be more than an eye for an eye and more than a tooth for a tooth. Like, to actually get to an eye for an eye is actually a move towards shalom, which is why that word can be used in the same sentence as no blood guilt is incurred because you're actually moving closer to that word to like, in in essence, like everything is contextual. And, you know, it'd be like if we have a law right now that doesn't make any sense, but it's actually an improvement on what was, but it's not the best, but it's an improvement. It's the best we can do in the context that we have, or it's the best we can do with the Congress that we have, the divided country that we are. So yeah, it's moved towards Shalom, but it's not there fully, but we can at least try. I mean, so I, I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm letting well, the Bible off the hook. It's well, when it, oh, go, go ahead, Lisa. Well, I was just thinking that I think part of my, the things I'm thinking about when I read that passage is when we're talking about theft, what are we talking about? Like, are we talking about somebody, if we're, listen, if it's me and my neighbor next door, 
we are both white people. We both have two working spouses. We've got some kids, both college educated. That guy comes over to my house and robs me. Feels very, very different than mm-hmm. somebody who I, I'm not, I don't know. Like I just, if everybody's on equal playing ground, then it feels like it's a, an intentional harm for no reason. Like you have enough. I have enough. It feels different to me when we're talking about when we have more and someone has less. And there's something in this passage. I think I had romanticized a little bit of how things were initially when, like the idea, like everybody owns property and then it goes back to you in seven years. Like there's this whole thing that feels like it's very communal in nature these feel very not communal in nature to me because it's a this way of like, well, these are my animals. Hmm. These are mine. And you took one. I don't care if you need, if your family is starving or not too bad. Now you have to come back with double. You didn't have one to freaking begin with. And now you got to come up with two, which you will never be able to do. That is where it feels like the tension for me in it is that, Oh, uh, it doesn't, the picture feels a little muddy here. Well, and maybe that's where, again, we don't have to let it off the hook, but combining the two things that you guys said can maybe give us a little bit different context for where they're coming from and what it's like. So one context they're coming from is this is Exodus 22. So they're fresh out of Egypt. In Egypt, if you steal something from an Egyptian, you die. doesn't matter if it's small or large, like the instant, because there is a power dynamic and somebody who is powered, who has more power is going to assert that power. It's part of a reading I heard of eye for an eye tooth for a tooth being really um, revolutionary in the sense that it means that no matter where you are in society, the punishment is the same. Mm-hmm. That, that, that the rule of eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was based on action, not based on status. And that that would be very different from mm-hmm. something they've experienced. Mm-hmm. And that this is maybe having some of that same thing. It's about whether or not you stole. It's not whether or not you are a king or poor or rich. Anybody who stole, the same punishment comes for you. Mm-hmm. And so that's one piece that feels potentially helpful to look at is to say it's not naming that there's any difference in race or class or insider or outsider. It's about the action. And the other piece to that what Lisa was saying is to say, if this is in the context of a place that was very communal, in theory, someone wouldn't have to steal because they're hungry, because no one would be hungry. Mm-hmm. And so does this law in that context feel different, that this law works when the rest of the thing is working the way it's supposed to? Because when the rest of the thing is working the way it's supposed to, you don't need to steal. And if you're stealing in that context, here's what's happening. And maybe this law changes if the rest of the thing is not working the way it's supposed to. Maybe there's a dynamic energy between this and the things like leaving the edges of your field open for gleaning Mm -hmm. to say Mm -hmm. in that context, someone's not stealing because they're hungry. Because if you're running things according to the other laws, no one's hungry. Right. Right. That's also a little bit romanticized. So I think that that's. Yeah. Well, I think too, I think it's, it doesn't feel very eye to eye, eye for an eye for me here in this passage. It feels much more like we're going to place a value and then you're going to pay more. You're going right. to do more. That's okay. not, Which not makes a simple, sense. like you take my cow, you got to give me a cow. Which makes sense if you actually do already have a whole field of cows and you're stealing yes. your neighbor's cow. Then it's yes. like, what are you doing? Like yeah. give them three back, like <laughs> idiot, you know, but like, but if you are poor, <laughs> then, then yeah, the, then the punishment doesn't really fit the crime at all and it seems like an extreme case and and i think i think to to make room for the hesitation on all this is is needed because in our time right now what people like to do is parachute in grab a verse out of context and then say here's why we should have a stand your ground law or here's why we should have you know the criminal justice system do this Here's why the 13th Amendment can have a little tweak in it that says, unless you are incarcerated, which is in this verse, right? If you can't pay back the debt, then you can get sold, right? And so suddenly, there you go. Like, now you can work for free, right? Um, That's slavery. And so that's what happens right after we have the, you know, 
18, you know, 63 and the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment has a little clause that people that are incarcerated can actually be slaves um, and keep going. So anyway, if you parachute in, you can find what you need. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we're not looking holistically at what society should have been like in its totality, which is an equitable space, a place that creates room for gleaning, that creates room for shared community. Well, and this is, so why the hell are we here? Okay. <laughs> like, how is this? Steph, what's the shalom? Get us to shalom, Steph. Well, okay. So if we assume, so we're going to give, we're going to give God the benefit of the doubt right now. We've layered some of the complexity. Great. Well, that feels like a stretch. <laughs> okay. So here's, but here's how we're going to do it. If we assume that a part of verse one being written the way it is, if someone steals an ox or sheep, kills it and sell it, sells it, that he needs to restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That assumes the person who stole is a person of means to pay back that multiple. So actually what I would apply that to right now is the uh, is rampant capitalism, where we have rich people stealing from poor people who maybe should pay back four for the one they stole. That would be a, another comparison point to bring this forward to say, if you've got 10 ox and you steal your neighbors, you better give back five because you have, you have, you have abundance and you stole from someone else. And that's really not okay. Keep going. So, like yeah. it so far. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of the conversation I just had um, last week with somebody about financial institutions that were um, investing in for-profit prisons, which mm. I feel uh, passionate about, but had not done enough homework on. And I was absolutely mortified on how many big financial institutions that I have paid interest rates to that took that money and invested in for-profit prison work. And I didn't know, like, I just, I didn't know. I didn't think to look. And in what ways am I contributing without even, because I don't spend time looking at like, what does my bank, where does my bank invest money? I don't think mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, why would what, you? and right? what is their responsibility to pay yeah. back for those kind of investments. Mm. Right. Okay. So now, we're, now it's That's actually like a version point. of being in verse six, um, which is talking about a fire breaking out. And then when a fire breaks out a whole, a whole field going up in smoke, there's, there's also a restitution here when someone's careless. Like if I decide I want to light a fire right here, I want to invest my money right here. And I'm not paying attention to the ramifications of my actions. And it burns up somebody's field because I wanted to have a fire right here. I, there's some work I've got to do to restore what that person lost. I don't just get to move on with my life because I wanted to have a fire. If I go the verse before that, if I go have my animals eat in somebody else's field, I got to repay that. I can't just, again, that feels like I have abundance. I have animals that need to eat and I'm choosing to have them feed on somebody else's field instead of on my field so that I can have even more. That's not okay. Pay that back. Pay that back double. Which this then feels a little bit like Zacchaeus in the conversation with Jesus and Zacchaeus about like, I'm going to pay back double what I took in taxes. That some of this language is more circumstances that sound like that. That it's people with abundance taking more. And that's not good. Okay, so then get us to Shalom because so, I hear what you're saying and I couldn't agree more. And I love the idea of seeing our financial institutions as an example of this. But where's the Shalom come in? So Shalom, the verb part, is coming in every time it's using the word restitution or pay or restore. Okay. So if a man steals an ox or sheep, kills it, sells it, he shall Shalom five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. If a fire breaks out and that field rises up, the one that kindled the fire shall shalom, shalom. It's actually repeated there. If you have your animal eaten someone else's, make someone else's field, shalom. Um, so this is the word to restore, to make restitution, to pay back. Uh, to make it good, 
to make it complete, to make it sound. It's interesting how it feels like you're always, um, if you're in a position of having to make restitution or to pay back, you're in a position of losing. It's going Mm. to cost you something. And it's going to cost you more than the initial thing. So like, especially focusing on that verse one, because it feels so clear. If you steal one ox, shalom means giving five oxes, oxen. Mm -hmm. Like that is a cost because I took that action that wronged my neighbor for my own greed. I have to do more than just one for one. It takes something bigger or deeper to make that complete or sound or whole than just me returning one for one. Well, in a way, that kind of reminds me of when, you know, sometimes the, the corrective discipline that a parent applies doesn't exactly fit what was happening. And what's the parent then say? I don't want you to forget that we don't do this in the family, right? Like, so the kid, you know, cheats in a game of cards with the kid down the street. And it's like, you lost all television for the evening. And you're like, wait, what are you talking about? I just was messing around. And it's like, yeah, but we don't do that here. Like we don't, you know, like that's a really dumb, dumb example. But the point is, is like by going above and beyond, you're saying like, like we're going to make you feel this because this isn't how we operate. Like, we got to be different. Which makes me like all kinds of curious about like peacemaking, peacekeeping kind of things, because it's often from a place we talk about it. Like it's a place of um, like, we want to be in that place of offering peace. We want to be in the position of like propelling that forward. But this is telling me that we are losing, like you're going to lose. And it almost like this is almost in the criminal sense of like, you're wrong. So you've got to make it right. Like, but in some ways, when I hear people talk about peacekeeping, it's coming from like this. We think we're in the right space and we're going to make it right. Does that make sense? Right. Well, this is a part of focusing on the verb first to see how we understand the noun is to say this idea of a restorative restitution payment that makes something whole as the verb part has a different sort of cost to it. If we're talking about being a peacemaker, if we're taking shalom and making it into a noun from this verb, that means I'm going to pay what's required to make the situation whole and what's required might be more than I want to pay. I might, it might hurt. It might not just be conflict avoidance. (laughs) And, And I think that sometimes we think of, especially the story of Israel and, you know, in the wilderness and coming out of slavery. And we think of the word Shalom and we think of peace and we think of a lack of violence or conflict and we see it from a place of, well, these are the people that have been on the bottom. And of course they need to have a sense of not conflict because they've been oppressed. But mm-hmm. part of the trajectory isn't to remain the oppressed people, but to now be the people moving into an organized ordered society that has means that has land that has uh, the ability to govern itself. and. If you're going to be that type of a people, you may, may make, make mistakes with that because you might want to use the power for yourself. You may want to benefit from it, not just survive off of it. And that's going to require some restitution. And so I think it's in a way almost like a warning to privilege to say, hey, now that you have power, don't do the thing that you just got out of. Mm-hmm. Now that you have power, don't just do the thing that you just got out of. I was just noticing that this this same verb is in a verse that a lot of people know from the book of Joel, or and they where people talk about this as a concept, where God talks about restoring to you the years that the locust has eaten. Um, and that that is shalom. So God is saying there, the years that the locusts have eaten, I will make that whole and right. I will, and if we p- apply the same sort of 
trajectory of the verb to that, that might even mean like, it will cost me something. I will give you more than what you lost, that there's some action of God's part that is doing that hard work of restoration for the years that were lost to the locusts. Well, now when I, I feel like I did do a study on that at one point, one of the things that I, we were talked about in the study was that like God is restoring the years not necessarily what the locusts have eaten. Like there's something about time in that one. That's a little interesting to think about restoration of. Mm -hmm. And which is somewhat helpful for me because I'm getting a little bit tied into like, well, it's all about like how many cows. (laughs) And and in some ways, I don't, yeah, I'm trying to wrestle out a lot of things here because it's pulling into the criminal justice system and it's pulling into, um, I don't know, modern peacekeeping movements, peacemaking movements. It's pulling both of those right now. And I'm trying to figure out where I'm, how to kind of broaden it or loosen it for myself. Right. So to say you can't always repair exactly what was lost. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting in those verses in Exodus about the fire. It doesn't say pay a field. It says make it whole because that's going to be a little more complex. Like when it's an ox, give another ox. When it's a field, figure out how to make that sucker whole. Because how do you pay that back? So I like the way that Lisa, as you said that, that just leaves room that we can't always make it whole according to the original breaking, which is then I I have the picture with this word of a bit of uh, Kintsugi art, the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with gold, is that the pot never looks the same as it once was. And you've repaired it in a conscious way that has added to the beauty of what it once was while still holding on to the fact that there was brokenness there. Yeah. It's a way of saying like, we can't go back and like pretend like this never happened. Mm-hmm. That That's not possible. So let's not, let's not pretend that we can. This relationship has had damage. Mm-hmm. And and now what? Like how do we how do we actually restore this? I think that's part of the I mean, restorative justice is such a big uh conversation within um in inside of incarceration and looking at what that looks like for both the person who committed the offense and the person who was harmed or mm-hmm. their family and community. And it's a difficult, it's a, it's a really difficult space. I mean, in theory, it sounds like, Oh, that's just a great idea. But to figure out how to do something to make amends or uh, how do you even move forward when some of that harm is like taking a life mm-hmm. um, that to forgive yourself and then to ask for forgiveness and to, work towards that and to be a person who would offer that forgiveness to people. That's some of the most powerful things you can see is when everybody has to participate, but it costs everybody something different. Mm -hmm. Which I actually, um, I volunteered with a restorative justice agency for a time. And so I was on in some of those restorative circles for people who had done, um, who, who had taken that option in their, um, in their sentencing. And one of the things really striking to me was that the participant in the circle who had done the wrong had to be included in the restorative conversation. So it wasn't just about the community or the person who was harmed. It was also about what led that person to make that choice and restoring that to help Mm. that person, that person who had committed the wrong be more whole. Mm-hmm. to help them not commit the wrong again. So like there was, um, you know, situations like bad roommate situations where like, Hey, let's talk about in your plan, like fixing a bad roommate situation. Like that counts as a part of the restoration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about everybody being involved, Lisa, let's go to Nehemiah six. You're you're pulling out some interesting ones today, Steph. Yeah, Nehemiah 6, 15. Whose turn is it to read something? Yours. Is it mine? (laughs) Okay. 
On the 25th day of the month of Elul, the wall was Shalom. It took 52 days to complete it. What did it mean? What did it take for Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem to make the wall of Jerusalem Shalom after it had been broken down? My translation has that as finished, that the wall was finished. So if you're not familiar with the book of Nehemiah, I don't know how many, how often our listeners end up in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah works for the king of Persia. He hears that. And so people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem after exile. And Nehemiah learns that the wall of Jerusalem is in disrepair. Um, and he gets approval from the king to go and repair that wall. And he involves the whole community in rebuilding that wall. And this verse, when the wall is finished, the word shalom is the word chosen to describe that wall being completed. How does that affect how we hear shalom? Which, by the way, this is the wall of Jerusalem. So it's uh, Jerusalem. It comes from the word shalom as well. It's like it's the city of peace, city of wholeness. This word we're talking about, but now the wall around it is shalom. What's the wall for? That's a good question. What's the wall for? What's a wall of an ancient city do? Keeps people out. And? Lets people in. So in the ancient world, walled cities, the walls are, I mean, um, allow there to be gates where people come and go. Who do you want to keep out? Who do you want to let in? Is it too obvious to say the bad guys and the good guys? (laughs) I don't think so. Well, just because we don't, I I think that we might automatically think a wall is a bad thing. There's a way that that can feel bad to some of us. For some of us, maybe it feels good. But even to our own houses, like, why do we have doors on our house? Why do we have walls in our houses? Like, how is a bit of that ability to keep, to be thoughtful about what comes out and what goes in? How is that a part of living as a safe and whole human? Because if there's no walls, if there's no door. Well, I think about, I mean, I was, I mean, I've been to Jerusalem. It's not the same time and place, but the the wall is some of the, a wall is still there and you still enter through gates, but the gates are open. Um, there's movement. There, there's some tensions for sure. <laughs> uh, some complicated places in there, but in some, like, you know, when you're, but when you're in it, like I just, if I'm thinking strictly, if I pull out all the politics and all the military things, when you're inside of it, you don't really think too much about it. And even when you're outside of it, you don't think too much about it. The only time you're really thinking about it is when you're crossing to like get into it. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, you're entering into a different space. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had like, a, yeah, I don't know. It, like there's a lot of questions. It has a lot of things. I think what I'm thinking about is it probably depends like to, to, Shalom, this wall probably depends on if you're a person that benefits by having the wall up, that if it offers you some sort of protection or some sort of boundary that you celebrate. Uh, For a group of people that are returning from exile, that probably is a source of celebration to like rebuild that wall, to put in the final pieces. In my head, when I think of it being Shalom means that like you've probably laid the last brick. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> but like the last big stone piece has been put in place and mortar and how you build it is done. It's it's not done. You probably still have to do maintenance and care for it. But like there's a moment where you can go, this has been restored. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that in the ancient Near East, 
there's a level of culture that is being protected. So if we, you know, we know the story of the, the Northern 10 tribes get kind of taken over by Assyria from the North and they don't just take them into, you know, exile. They actually like, like syncretism, right? So they kind of assimilate within them. Right. And it's this whole, intermarriage loss of culture you're becoming us we're becoming you you lost identity ethnically culturally like everything right and so we have this kind of the people are never the same again whereas the southern tribes go off into exile and there's some right cross-pollinization i'm sure within babylon and then persia but ultimately the king of persia sends them back they rebuild the wall i would imagine rebuilding the wall says okay inside these walls we get to be us again right and that's a big theme in ezra and nehemiah is that like the jews are going to be the jews again we finally get to like practice who we are and be who we are so at some level these walls these gates these doors you know like inside this we get to be who we are i mean i think about it when people come over for a dinner party at our house when they cross that threshold and walk into our house it's not like we're doing it any random way we're doing it our house's way right we're gonna either we're gonna pray or not pray around the table before dinner we're either gonna do a blessing or not a blessing we're either gonna you know clink our glasses or not like we're gonna have our rituals our themes because you entered into this space inside this wall through these doors um and and that that that's meaningful for a lot of cultural reasons, a lot of expressions of who people are, who a, who a society is. So I think that wall plays a really important part, not just from the safety perspective, but also from a cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. Which that might tie into when Nehemiah first hears about it. What's the language around what he hears in chapter one is the survivors of the uh, captivity who returned. They're they're being afflicted and ashamed. And uh, and shame and reproach, and the wall is in disrepair. So there's this sense of like this is about identity, this is about safety. There's something that needs to be made whole to help this city rebuild, to help the people rebuild, and to be themselves again, and to feel to feel safe um, again. That a wall really does have that safety piece as well in the ancient world of then trusted people can make sure that marauders don't come in while also allowing others to come in. And that doesn't gates. have to be like threshold. I, well, use the word, Yeah. You use the word threshold. So I, so I wanted to repeat that word that it, a, a wall creates thresholds that are conscious. Yeah. Instead of it just being wide open and those conscious thresholds can then be held by the people who live there instead of it just being all open right right and that's important like we have to create that space for there to be something a unique and that uniqueness doesn't have to be a bad thing like uniqueness is healthy like we have to be the people god's created us to be let's take it back to the noun unless you had another thought on the wall lisa no go ahead Okay, we're going to take it back to the noun using a verse that we have studied on this podcast before. So you can go back to to this uh, episode or or I don't even know which one it is, but Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah 29 is before Nehemiah. It's before it's, um, it's as exile is happening and they're being told to build houses during their exile in um in babylon in verse 7 jeremiah 29 verse 7 says seek the shalom now we're back to noun seek the shalom of the city where i have caused you to be carried away as captives pray to the lord for it for in its shalom you shall have shalom so wondering how we hear that after this discussion about the verb. What is it to pray for the shalom of a place? What is it to know that in its shalom you shall have shalom? What is it to seek the shalom of a place? The word seek there, because we talked before about in the priestly blessing, the action was give, that we're asking God to give us shalom. Now God is saying to the people, you seek Daresh. This is like a deep searching. You seek the shalom of the place you're living. 
that you've got a job to do. What does that mean? It's not just something that's just going to like happen. You got to participate in it. You have to, you got to work for yeah, it. Yeah. Like sometimes that priestly blessing, even how we talked about it, it seems like Shalom is something that God gives here. Humans are being told to seek it. So there is something to like work for. There's a job that we might have towards making this kind of wholeness. Well, it almost feels like it implies like that God has access to it, like in a way that God can dole it out. There's some sort of action that feels inherent to who God is that involves that. And I don't know if humans are ever told to give. Like are humans told Mm -hmm. to give it or are we always supposed to be seeking it because it's something outside of us, not something that we're inherently have. Okay. That's a deep thought. Wow. Uh, can you repeat that? I think so. Because I was thinking, so God gives it, which means God has it. That so somehow that's the source. God has access to shalom at any time. God's giving it out. But if humans are told to seek it, then it's something that's kind of outside of us. There's something. There's some other work. It's not inherently inside of us. It's, there's something else that's happening with it. And so I was just curious if we, if humans are ever told to give peace or if we're always in a different action if we're at a different space with it if we're if we're always seeking it that's a great question you know it kind of reminds me of the lord's prayer where it's you know like the source the divine parent you know our father who art in heaven this this place where everything is like operating the way it should um you know may your name be holy and then thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, it's almost like this, like God has it figured out and now we're moving towards what's already been figured out. And, and so like this idea of peace, this, this idea of restoration, this idea of restitution, this idea of wholeness, like it's already in existence within God. And now we're being invited to move towards it. And that's the constant movement. That's what this place is supposed to look like, but it's going to be an effort at all times. I was looking up in response to Lisa's question. I was curious about um, Deuteronomy 20. I just couldn't remember it was Deuteronomy 20. So that's what I was looking up while Jason was giving his beautiful exposition of the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) But that idea that it requires something of us is something to hold on to with, with Shalom. But this is the closest I could think of to when we give it, but it's not giving. That's what I was looking at. So in the, in Deuteronomy 20, it's laws about war. Um, and what we're doing there, what they're told is when they go into the land and they approach a city, um, they're not supposed to fight against it until they proclaim Shalom. So that's, it's not give shalom. Again, it's, it's another verb. It's kara. So it's to proclaim or to cry out shalom. And then if they respond, um, positively to that, then you are supposed to, um, make, um, shalom with them and, and not fight. But it doesn't say give. So. It might, yeah, go ahead. Does, okay, this is, this is a random one. Is it, does Jesus say like, uh, like my peace I give to you? No, something. Yeah, John 17. Mm -hmm. Or not John, not 17. That's what, (laughs) it's John, it's John though. It's, it's, yeah, I think it made it 17. <laughs> when, if you're being, when Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit. Okay. 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 It's John. I think it's John 15. Okay. Great. Because then it feels like like Jesus is giving it. So like Jesus has it. Jesus gives it. I, yeah. It's it. I mean, 
this is, yeah, I think we make it, we do other things with it, but we're not right. We can make it, we can proclaim it. We can seek it. We can pray for it. Um, and we also can salam. So back to that verb at the root of it, there are things we can, that verb is ours, the, that restorative verb of five oxen for the one ox. That's a human action. But that's different than giving the shalom. It's the, it's really it's requiring something different. John fourteen. I only said that because Jason put it in the chat instead of saying it out loud. <laughs> in case we didn't want to say it, but yeah, John fourteen twenty seven, talking about the Holy Spirit. So interestingly. Jesus is talking about giving the spirit that the spirit will come. And then the quote is like my peace I give to you. And so there's almost like an equation of the spirit and peace being used potentially interchangeably as what will be present in people's lives post Christ and so post Jesus, I should say not post Christ, mm -hmm. but post Jesus. And so, yeah, that's an interesting addition to our conversation on mm -hmm. all of this well and i think maybe related to this action about what what is given what we have access to um i think this came up in our melchizedek podcast um that the story of melchizedek is the first time the word shalom is used in any of its forms and that's genesis 14 and so um there's a lot of the story where shalom isn't talked about which to me feels related to this idea that restoration is at the heart of the action. And so there's nothing like in the garden, shalom isn't a word of the garden, perhaps because there is wholeness already present. So wholeness doesn't need to be restored. Um, whereas as time moves on, there's more and more things that require that action of restoration, that seeking of restoration, that making of wholeness because that wholeness has been broken in some way or um, harmed in some way. I feel, I feel like that tracks with human experience, right? Like if we, if, if the idea is we are born whole and that as we live and experience have experiences, there are things that break or harm or disappoint and make things feel less than whole. And for some of us, those are huge gaps that are take a, a significant amount of restoration. I keep thinking of like all these verses and stories in the context of like human development. And, you know, when a one of the reasons why we don't maybe, and I think this tracks with what you both just said about early on in Genesis and the garden and all that is when you're when you're like when you're raising a kid and they make a mistake for the first time if you dole out punishment when they didn't even know they were doing something wrong the kid's going to respond but i didn't even know i did it i didn't even know that was the wrong i didn't even know i couldn't say that i didn't even know i couldn't do that how, how was i supposed to know and and yeah if you're the one like demanding restitution in that moment for what they didn't even know that they were hurting anything but now that they do, right? So if you have that simple conversation of, hey, you know, those words can not always be the kindest way of talking to someone. Um, and now if they choose to use them, okay, there might be a natural consequence for the way that you are harming this relationship. We may need to move in this other direction and bring a little wholeness or bring some restitution because you knew that was going to hurt my feelings. You knew that wasn't how we operate. Um, and I feel like that's what we're getting at in Exodus. We're getting that in other passages here is the maturity of a people that, that should know better and are either intentionally causing harm um, and then needing that corrective to figure out what does wholeness now look like again. Which goes back to it requiring something of us. Are we paying attention to where we need to be a part of restoration towards wholeness where we need to seek it where we need to pray for it where we need to ask god to give it to us because <laughs> beyond what we can do it seems like it's 
it's really, it's easy for us to identify the ways that we need restitution. It's much more difficult to figure out the ways in which we have to restore something else. Mm. Like our ownership in it makes it, it's more difficult. Not necessarily like the work of restoration is hard period. But if it, if we, if we need it, we usually can identify it pretty quickly of like where I, where I've been wronged or what's been taken or been harmed. It's much more difficult, I think, to maybe, I mean, maybe that's why we're not told to give it because we're going to be really bad at it, <laughs> figuring out <laughs> how we've harmed. We got to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause it is, it, it's like the bank. Like I, I have to, I actually have to look and do some research on where my bank invests, which feels exhausting to be honest. Like, holy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everything I do, I got to look at. <laughs> I can't, mm-hmm. I, can't, well, can't people just be good. It gets back to like where we started with so much of this conversation about the work that, you know, Lisa, you do within the prisons and it's so much easier to just ignore sentencing and just be like, someone did something wrong. Here's what the sentence is. Who cares what the, who cares why they did it here? Who cares what they're going to learn from it restoratively and how they could bring about a, a sense of wholeness. Like, forget it. Like, let's just not think about this anymore because it would be more convenient and easier as opposed to doing the hard work of examining okay, maybe we're not the ones that are best suited to be doling out what the price is, but we need to ask the question, how can we seek this? I'm, I'm left with this. Is, this is starting to feel like takeaways and I'm having this takeaway of going back to that priestly blessing again and to say in, a, in that blessing that we started with, I am not asking God to give me shalom. I'm asking God to give you shalom, which requires me to be willing to ask that of God on behalf of others, Mm -hmm. which also, if I really mean that, would require me to perhaps give some things up in order for that other person to have it. And so how is that request, if I'm making it not God give me shalom, but God give you shalom, what might that open up in me? In us as a society, if we prayed that and blessed other people with, may God give you shalom, and then I'm going to partner with that blessing by seeking shalom for you, mm-hmm. how might that action paired start to require something different of me mm. and require me to pay attention, but also just pay attention to the next step in front of me? I think it just relates back to me, the, like the really important work of keeping people who we want to be outsiders as part of our community to see that as, um, for me, it's like seeing folks who are incarcerated, they're part of our community while exiled, while oppressed, while outside, they're still part of our community. And how do we treat them that way? Um, is a work of, for sure is a work of shalom and seeking. I mean, and the seeking of it is it's for them as, and, and for myself. I know that it's better for all of us if everybody is restored. Mm -hmm. And it's going to cost me something because there's a risk. There's a risk to, there's a risk to all of it. You have a takeaway, Jason? I was just trying to think of a way to reframe that numbers passage. So we're incorporating the nuance of what we're what we've been talking about. You know, almost like changing the language, like the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord's countenance be upon you. And may you seek. And may we seek peace together. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 
40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that. Process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Sacred.